This is another iRaw podcast. Uh, a commons, it's a helpful place like Argaberry where you can really find salient threads of, of um, multi-species connections. Welcome back to The Animal Turn, everyone. This is season three, where we're focusing in on animals and the urban. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about multi-species commons with Marcus Banus Rock. And I don't know about you, but I cannot believe that it is already episode seven. Uh, this has been a slightly strange season for me. And normally I do the interviews on a rolling basis where I do an interview and then two weeks later I do another one so that I can refer back to previous interviews. But because I was moving countries from uh, Canada to Austria, things are a bit crazy. So I did all of these interviews in April and I'm kind of you know, running through the editing process as the season unfurls. And it's been really, it's been a really fun experience. But while listening to the conversation with Marcus, I'd kind of wished that I'd, there were a couple of moments where I wished I'd referred back to Yamini's informality or Catherine Oliver's urban metabolism or, you know, pervasive captivity with Nicola Delon. Because multi-species commons is actually a pretty exciting concept. And you're going to see that Marcus and I enter this uh, conversation with somewhat different understandings of what multi-species commons is. I very much had a, I think, a grounded idea of it being a very particular type of historical space, whereas Marcus came in thinking about it as a, a way of understanding and unpacking particular spaces. Throughout the episode, we end up workshopping the idea, realizing that multi-species commons is both useful theoretically and methodologically, which I think is super, super exciting. Uh, just a quick note about Marcus. He is an anthropologist who studies the interfaces between humans and animals. His book, Among the Bone Eaters, tracks his experiences following urban hyenas in the town of Ara in Ethiopia. And we speak for almost the first half hour about these experiences with the hyenas. It's, it's absolutely fascinating and just the, the ethnographic work that he did in trying to understand how humans, hyenas, and a variety of different animals interact in this town is exceptional and infinitely fascinating. More recently, Marcus has written about the new wave of animal domestication and what it can teach us about the destruction of the world's ecological systems. Uh, you can see his latest book, Crocodile Undone, which looks brilliant. I haven't read it yet, but I'm, I'm really excited to do so. Anyhow, in this episode, we talk about multi-species commons as a concept. And like I said earlier, we really unpack and we think through this concept and it's super generative. Uh, I'm really excited about the type of work that this concept could do. Hi, Marcus. Welcome to The Animal Turn. Hi, Claudia. Thank you for having me. I've got to say straight away that your writing is just amazing. Uh, I, I read your paper about uh, multi-species commons now just shortly before the interview, and I felt like I was reading a, like an unbelievable drama was unfolding where all of these different actors, uh, you know, were, were coming into play. And yeah, I also read the introduction to your book, uh, Bone Eaters. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much for, for the work you do and what a joy to read your work. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for the compliment. I, it's the only kind of writing I, I really know how to do. I'm not very good at um, at heavy theory. I'm not very good at grappling with concepts. So uh, I just write what I see, and I find that's that's about. I mean, writing's a struggle at any time, but um, it, it's a bit easier when you can just write what you've what you've seen. Yeah. Well, good thing you're on the show today, and we're going to be speaking all about concepts. <laughs> oh, great! But I think uh, I think 
based on based on your writing, I reckon we're going to have a really great conversation. But before we get into uh, the idea of a multi-species commons, uh, perhaps we can speak a little bit about you and how you came to have what's probably going to be one of the most unique interests in in animals in the urban uh, is hyena. Okay, firstly, I always say it wrong. I say hyenas, and my husband has now told me that that's not the right way to say it. It's hi he hyena hyena no <laughs> well i mean you're, you're from south africa i think you have a, a, more of a right to call them what you want i call them hyenas but i think you're saying it right if i'm honest i'm i just seem to add extra letters into two words like i say submarine instead of some submarine anyway okay hyena uh you look at hyenas there we go. Okay, we're just going to have to deal with it for the rest of the episode. Okay. Uh, you look at hyenas in Hurrah, uh, and that's got to be one of the most standout examples of of an urban animal that I could think of. I, I know of a number of people that write about coyotes, that write about squirrels, that have written about rats. Uh, but are there a lot of people that are doing this kind of work, looking at hyenas in Hurrah or in any city, really? Um not really, not hyenas. Um, most of the hyena studies are in, or what you would call um, reserves, national parks, like uh, Ngorongoro Crater, Masai Mara. Uh, there are some studies that have been done on peri-urban hyenas. Uh, a guy called mm-hmm. Gide Yerga in, uh, in Ethiopia has done some really interesting stuff on hyenas in northern Ethiopia. And he looks okay. at he looks at how attitudes and how how human activity impacts on hyenas and how how feedback mechanisms work. So uh, the fasting time that I talk about in my book, uh, Farsica impacts on hyenas because people uh, don't eat animal products in the Christian areas of Ethiopia during that time. And so he decided to look at that, and he found that hyenas were preying on donkeys during that period because the the scavenging opportunities were were drying up. So really interesting, Christian holidays – tend to affect how hyenas are eating in this part of the world. Yes, um, because in uh, in Ethiopia, hyenas are really highly dependent on human waste products. And um, and the humans are a little bit quirky and, you know, they don't eat meat all the time. So they're not, they're not constantly pr- providing this, uh, this food for the hyenas. So the hyenas have to adapt to this um, religious like two months of fasting, this religious occasion in northern Ethiopia and in some parts of um, southern and eastern Ethiopia. And do, do they hunt at all or are they purely scavengers? <clears throat> there are probably places in the south where they hunt, in the Omo Valley. They just do what what's ever um, most productive, I guess you could say. So where they, where they have hunting opportunities, they'll hunt because they can get fresh meat. But where there's not much to be hunted, they'll scavenge. They're... they're they're really uh, opportunistic. They're you know flexible. And how on earth did you come to be interested in? So, so you're not from this part of the world. Uh, it's you know maybe an animal or a species that you've had you encountered them prior to deciding to do research on them. How did you come to be interested in hurrah and these kinds of multi-species relationships that were happening in the city? What was your journey? My journey, it was a pretty long journey. Um, it started with me uh, in my undergrad years doing paleoanthropology. And I became interested in the 
the way that humans evolved alongside other large carnivores as competitors and as prey species to these carnivores. And um, there's a very close relationship between humans and hyenas, different, different species of hyenas in evolutionary history, in both of our evolutionary histories. And we're both, um, we both tend to converge on the same niche. And there's a lot of evidence in the archaeological record of humans and hyenas competing for the same resources. So I was studying um, the behavioural ecology of hyenas so I could get some a better idea of how they fitted into the human niche and how, how we fitted into theirs. And I just came across a passage in a book by Hans Crook, who, who did the seminal work on spotted hyena behaviour. Uh, and he said that there was this place in eastern Ethiopia where hyenas walk the streets and they're encouraged by the locals. Uh, and for me, knowing what I knew at that time about how hyenas are denigrated and um, persecuted pretty pretty broadly, um, I thought, my God, that's a bit strange. And so so I thought I'd actually include that in, a, in part of a PhD study. I never planned to do an ethnography in Harab. At that, at that time. Um, but when I was looking at PhD proposals, my honours advisor said, Marcus, you should go to Harrah and do an ethnography. And so I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I'll go there for six months and, and do that. And then uh, then I started my PhD and my advisor, Debbie Rose, said, no, you're going to have to spend a year there. And I ended up spending about 15 months in total. Yeah, That's amazing. I mean, that's, it's, it's gutsy. So where were you doing your PhD? Where were you uh, when this all happened oh. and your interest in? Uh, that was Macquarie University where I did my PhD. So I was in Australia. What a like what a journey! Had you had you been to any African countries previously, or was this the first time traveling continents and engaging in any sort of ethnographic work? No, I'd only been to safe European countries and uh, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so it was yeah, it was a bit of a shock to the system um traveling outside of the you know the safe zone of the the um western world i guess you could say yeah yeah uh so i mean a completely different part of the world but also a completely different kind of project right the idea that you were going to go there to watch uh hyenas you know, was that wasn't that scary for you? You you said there that they're a very denigrated kind of species. People think they're, they're quite vilified in in a number of ways. I think a lot of people probably the Lion King pops to mind immediately. Somehow they're they're villains. Um, yet you decide to hop on a plane, fly to a country so that you can get up close and personal with them. So were you worried at all about how how you were going to observe them or watch them? Did did you know what to expect? I didn't really know what to expect. I, I had a preconceived notion of just following hyenas around, at, you know, at a respectable distance um, after a habituation period. Um, I thought they might smell bad. I didn't. Mm. I didn't expect to be interacting with them. I, I was just thinking I'd be going there as an observer. Yeah. And and how did the interactions between you start? So were you you were keeping a distance and <clears> and then then what did you I'm going to start covering that too. <laughs> um, what kind of <coughs> what kind of uh, relationship started to form between you? Uh, you know, this is a common ethnographic 
concern, isn't it? What kind of relationship you form with the the, the subject you're watching? It is, yeah. And I, I wasn't, um, I didn't have sufficient knowledge. I hadn't, I hadn't even come from an anthropology background, so I wasn't, I wasn't prepared mentally prepared. I wasn't um, schooled in ethnography to the degree that I would, that I had any idea what I was doing. And um, my, I guess I wanted to habituate the hyenas, so I wanted to reduce their flight distance, which meant trying to be innocuous, trying to make them comfortable with the presence. Um, but then eventually one hyena, you know, started approaching me, and so that, that sort of flipped, out, flipped the relationship on its head in a way. Um, but I hadn't, I hadn't really tangled with the, the problem of doing ethnography with animals. I hadn't, I hadn't gone down that path because I wasn't expecting there to be much, of, much in, the, in the way of contact. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. And did you did you form distinct relationships with individual hyenas or was it um you know did it seem rather random or was it specific individuals that seemed to be seeking you out uh, and who you could start to identify? Oh, definitely specific individuals, and mm-hmm. they they all varied in terms of how they they responded to me. So some of them, um, some of them were afraid, and uh, some of them just didn't really care. Um, one or two were really quite interested in me, and then there were others like the the older ones. The older ones show this maturity where they seem to work out what you're about, and they, and once they've worked out what you're about, that you're not a threat. They tolerate you and they kind of, I mean, they know you and they tolerate you, but they're just not that interested in you. It's it's hard to describe. I can't think of a similar sort of human relationship, but um, they just, they just accept that you're there and they don't, they don't try and chase you off or they don't, they don't show any aggression, but they just don't show that much interest in you either. The old ones are really fascinating to me because they have this, um, they, they just have this wisdom uh, that the young ones don't seem to have. The young ones are very curious and the young ones are, I guess, open to new ideas. I mean, I guess it's, it's kind of beautiful, the idea that you might be insignificant, right? As humans, we kind of place ourselves at the center of all the stories and we like to think that we're really important. Um, but maybe the, the fact that they think you're insignificant is rather uh, revolutionary. Um, I think for a lot of people listening, you know, maybe when I speak about raccoons or squirrels, a lot of people can kind of understand or get a sense of how they're part of an urban landscape. But how how do carnivores... How do carnivores form part of an urban landscape? You know, they've got a very distinct 
diets. They've got a different way of kind of navigating the space. So what are some of the ways in which carnivores like hyenas are, are perhaps differently related to urban areas? Um, yeah, well, I guess being carnivores, they're, they're not obligate carnivores, so they, they, they're pretty flexible mm-hmm. in what they can eat, but they do they do prefer meat and bones and skin. Um, another thing is body size, because when you're that big and that conspicuous, it's it's pretty hard to hide in the shadows. Yeah. And Mystery they don't leopard. have an ability. To... <clears throat> Leopards are, are much more adaptable to an urban environment in that they're secretive. Um, mm. They're possibly possibly not as uh, Catholic in their tastes. So they might be more specific in their diet. They, they probably rely a lot more on meat. But they're secretive. They can climb. They can... They can probably. I mean, they're not they're not hypersocial like hyenas as well. So they can um, they can go around you know solitarily. Whereas hyenas, they they live in large clans and they they compete with other clans. They're large bodied. They don't climb very well, and they they need a lot of food. I mean, a fully grown female can weigh eighty mm-hmm. kilos. They run at really high temperature. Wow. So they need to they need to eat a lot as well. And so adapting to an urban environment is its a kind of a particular, um, it, it requires a particular set of circumstances. You need a, a large human population, I guess, which urban environments have. <laughs> um, you need to generate a lot of waste product. If you take away the waste product, the hyenas are, are going to struggle. Um, I didn't ever see them hunting dogs. I didn't see any half-eaten dogs, so I'm... I don't think they rely very heavily on um, on urban dogs in that environment. So, and and how common how common is this in in African cities to have hyenas this close to urban environments, or is this a fairly unique situation that's happening in Harar? In Ethiopia, it's very common. Um, some researchers from Utah State University, they teamed up with a, a guy from McKellar University and they, they went through a few urban areas and they found hyenas. Um, I think they were more densely populated in Addis Ababa, which is the capital of, you know, what? however many million wow. people. Um, they are in all the urban centres. Do they walk? Sorry, now I'm, I know we need to get to the concept at some point, but this is just so fascinating. The idea of hyenas walking through city streets, you know, seeing them. I think it's in Nigeria as well, where you, you often sometimes see kind of, um, but I think that's quite a different relationship uh, in, in Nigeria. Uh, do they only go into the city in the evenings or would you see them during the day as well? No, you never see them during the day. That's that's another key to their success in an urban environment is that they um, they're not have they're not um, what's the word habitually nocturnal. They're not they're not necessarily nocturnal, but they do thrive um, in a nighttime setting. So they've got really great vision. They've got great sense of smell and hearing. Uh, they don't need daylight. And so um, when people go to their homes and, and go to sleep, the hyenas can come into the town and they can just scavenge and, and find all the waste product they need. Uh, they find they hyenas do that in Kenya as well in the villages where um, where the villages are next to the Masai Mara Reserve. The hyenas will go into the villages at night. People are starting, or researchers are starting to find that hyenas uh, are pretty dependent on human um, 
built environments for their food. So there could the be a connection actually between urbanization and their success? There could be, yeah. Uh, yeah, and in, in prehistorically, they're immensely successful. So um, they've been, remains of hyenas have been found as far as, uh, as far east as Java and in Thailand in rainforest settings, like um, prehistoric rainforest settings, uh, as far east as Mongolia in Asia, I believe. What? Northern Germany, Great Britain, um, not in the Americas. I don't think they ever crossed over that far, but um, they were they were in Ice Age Europe when the ice sheets were were just retreating. They were they were right there with the humans at the, at the forefront of the um, the species that were that were occupying the land that was um, being given over by the retreating of the ice sheets. They're, they're immensely adaptable. Yeah. But now they're only found on the African continents. Is that correct? Spotted hyenas, yes. Uh, there are striped hyenas in um, the Middle East, southern Southern Asia, and uh, but spotted hyenas only on the African continent, and same with brown hyenas and uh, hard wolves. Oh, um, okay. So to to come back to your your story a little, uh, so you spent fifteen months in Harar observing hyenas and their relationship with the locals. And what what do you what do you find? What do you what do you what do you find is going on there? I find that the the, the there's a social relationship between the people and hyenas, and um, but it's social not in the not in the run run of the mill way that we think about sociability. They're not you know, getting together and having having tea, but. Um, their, their social worlds interact and they overlap. So it's not it's not just a case of a separate human social realm and a separate hyena social realm, and the only the only crossover being the food. It's that the the social affairs of humans impact on the hyenas and vice versa as well. Um, and that's something that I write about in my article, Multi Species Commons, where. Where the social relationships between hyenas, uh, in particularly the clan, between two clans, impact on the humans there. Yeah, you've got this great uh, quote at some point in that article where you say the biolo- the biological is the social is the sorry it's not a quote it's something you say the biological is the social is the historical is the ecological, which I thought was really uh, pronounced because we kind of have a way of just saying okay humans are social. Animals are ecological, uh, and yeah, you you even bring in different aspects. You you bring in history, and you kind of show how entangled these two species, as as you've kind of alluded to now in the beginning of this episode, how entangled they are with with one another, and that you can't really understand either human or hyena ecology without actually trying to get it get to grips with how their social worlds are are entangled too. Um, could you maybe unpack a little bit of the drama? You begin that whole article off with uh, with the hyena that's undergoing some seizures, and you kind of tell us a bit about that story. Um, yeah, that, the story I, I begin with um, came from one evening, and uh, I guess my memory is not going to be as good as the article. I was I was going home from the hyena feeding place, which is where I was doing a lot of my uh, field research. 
and I got to the top of the hill and there was a, a crowd of people. And as I got closer, I realized that they were surrounding a young hyena on the ground. And the hyena was having spasms. Um, and it was like it was really distressed. And I, I actually thought it was rabid um, because it was foaming at the mouth. So um, I was I was concerned that it was going to lash out and bite somebody. Um, and I didn't know what to do. The people around were talking about what to do. And uh, someone went and got the, the man who feeds the hyenas. And he came and he began trying to treat the hyena. He thought it was one of his own. But as it transpired, this hyena was in fact poisoned and it had come and collapsed on the boundary between the two clan, the two hyena clans. And this was, it's, it's a random event, but it, what it triggered was um, really quite remarkable. And <clears throat> because the hyena man believed that it was one of the hyenas that he fed from the clan of hyenas that he fed, he tried to treat it. And then um, he got someone to bring a wheelbarrow and he put the hyena in a wheelbarrow and he took it to his feeding place. And by the time we got to his feeding place, all of the um, the hyenas from that clan, from the clan that he feeds, had already heard this hyena making its noises, and they they knew what was coming down the road, and they knew it was not one of them. And so we arrived in the feeding place, and there was about thirty hyenas. There, um, there was maybe ten or twelve, right up close, you know, just a few meters away from us. And then another 20 or so, um, you know, at varying distances out into the farmland. And you can see all these glowing eyes. So that all, that all turned out to to just intercept this, this um, hyena from the other clan that had been brought into their territory. Well, what happened was the hyena man uh, tried to give the hyena some milk. Um, that was my suggestion because that's the only thing I know <laughs> for treating poison. Uh, they tried that and the... And then uh, they just decided, okay, we'll let the hyenas have the hyena. And I hadn't, I hadn't managed to um, get it across to them that this was not one of their hyenas. So anyway, they they put this hyena down on the ground, and the um, the matriarch of the clan, the, uh, the highest ranking hyena, she came and she just grabbed this this little um, poisoned hyena and picked it up and went off into the farmland with it in her mouth. With all of the other hyenas just trailing after her. And I had no idea what happened to that little hyena after that. Um, considering the state it was in, I would say it was going to die anyway. But my concern was that they were going to eat it, which hyenas um, will eat other hyenas. And if they began, if they were eating that hyena, then the poison would go, would be passed on through them. And then, you know, mm. some of those hyenas would be dying. And that, that was my concern at the time. Sorry, I went home and just spent the night totally sleepless, just thinking about that little hyena. It's not something you easily forget. No, and I mean the, the the way you wrote about it, just so you've got this hyena that's convulsing, and you know someone is pouring lime in their mouth and then milk in the mouth, and you, and then the idea that there's the spot where someone feeds hyenas, just the the numbers of them, or you know over thirty hyenas in a smaller confined space, all you know, making the noise, that kind of giggling noise that they make with bristled hair, clearly agitated, and then they get taken away. They take this youngster away. But this isn't the end of the drama. So you've got these two different clans, or three clans, right, that live 
around the city from a member of one clan has been brought into by a human into a different clan's territory. And this leads to an unfolding drama over the next couple of days, doesn't it? Oh, over the next couple of over the next couple of decades. <laughs> um, really, what happened was uh, actually a friend of mine in the old town. He said there was a bunch of hyenas in the main market um, at around the time when that baby hyena was 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 in the middle of the clan, you know, in the middle of the feeding place. He said there was a bunch of hyenas in the main market and they were making a whole racket. And so that would have been the other clan, which I call the Aboka clan, um, to which that juvenile hyena belonged. And so um, I could only I can only conclude that they actually knew something was happening down at the feeding place. Um, I don't know what hyenas know, but um, I guess that they would know from the sounds that the the other hyenas were making that that there was some interclan thing going on or that there was killing going on you just don't know what hyenas know but they know so much um just from their hearing and their smell anyway um two or three days later the hyenas at the feeding place were making a bit of a racket and then a couple of hyenas were running up and down the road and so i followed followed one hyena up the road and then she turned around and ran back and they were really agitated. They had their tails up, their manes bristling. Something was going on. And then I followed the hyena back up the road and she had managed to recruit, I think, three others. Sorry if I get the details wrong, but this is just the general happening. And I followed these hyenas up the road and when we got to the um, clan boundary, which is where, that, where we found that poison hyena, there was a bunch of aboka hyenas from the other clan on the other side of the boundary under a streetlight, just kicking up a cloud of dust. And so the hyenas I was with, they got their manes up and their tails bristling and there was all this toing and froing where which is we call it a clam war. There's no there's no actual not usually um, any biting or, or violence involved, but um, it's a really intense, very, very aggressive situation. And the people had just cleared off the road. It was pretty early in the night. There were still a lot of people around. And the minibuses were still, you know, lining up to take people out to the farmland after they'd, they'd sold their stuff at the markets. But the, they'd just given the road over to the hyenas. And, yeah, there was a, a big display of aggression and so on and so forth. And then uh, eventually, for whatever reason, they just decided they'd both made their point and they turned around and went off back into their uh, respective territories. Wow, there's there's so much going on there. So the hyenas are busy with their own their own social dynamics. Humans getting off and out of the way, recognizing that something is going on, and instead of intervening, actually leaving alone, which is rather remarkable as well. Uh, but there just seems to be a social understanding and a social unfolding, I guess. Uh, and then you direct it back to this incident with the young hyena. Uh, were you welcomed in all of the different clans that you identified? So you've got these three hyena clans. Were you welcome in all three of them, or were you primarily just with one? I wouldn't say welcome. No, I was I was spending all of my time with one clan, mm-hmm. um, and I had done some work with the uh, that other clan. I had uh, spent time with them, but I didn't I didn't recognize many of the individuals of the other clan, the Aboka clan. I just followed them around. They were, they were a bit bolder than the Sophie clan who I spent most of my time with. And so there was this boundary where 
they just didn't cross? Were there any spaces in the city where you would find uh, all of the clans mixing or were they quite clear about which parts of the cities different clans had uh, claimed to? Yeah, I write about this at length. Um, hyenas, they they maintain their boundaries um, using scent and, and visually, so they need to they need to be able to have some means of maintaining a boundary. In in wilder places, uh, they'll scratch the dirt and leave a scent from their interdigital glands. They'll they'll deposit feces and create latrines which mark their boundaries. Uh, they'll mark. Uh, they'll mark blades of grass and bits of vegetation with scent from their anal glands, uh, which people call hyena butter. Um, that's a secretion out of their anal glands. They mm, butter. <laughs> hyena butter. Yeah. Anal, anal butter. <laughs> okay. I'm not putting that on my so... toast. Yeah, it's... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, carry on. <laughs> um, and so. They also recognise uh, their boundaries just by remembering interactions there. So when there's a clan war, a young hyena will follow along and they'll, they'll see what's going on there and they'll recognise that that's a boundary. Um, if hyenas chase a, a prey animal across a, a, a recognised boundary, then the other hyenas will, will intercept them and there'll be a clan war or some sort of dispute. Um, so they're really into boundaries, especially where they're densely populated. In Hara, it's a lot more difficult to maintain a boundary. Um, in the old town, it's very densely populated and it's, uh, it's just all laneways, narrow laneways with high walls. There's very little vegetation because it's always full of goats and they're eating the grass down to the ground. Um, it's always being trampled by people and donkeys and goats. It's just really hard for a, when you think about it, it's so hard for a hyena to maintain a boundary in a, in a densely populated maze of laneways. Um, and what I found was that in the old town, in this, in the, in the very complex setting, um, the hyenas would interact with hyenas from other clans without, um, without conflict. There might have been tension, but, uh, it appeared to me that they didn't have any recognized clan boundary in the old town because like how would you know <laughs> but outside the town there there was this this place where that juvenile hyena had been found the the it's called the argaberry gate and they both recognized that place as a boundary but again i couldn't see any way that they could maintain that boundary in the traditional means by marking it scent marking deposits of feces because it was a busy road um, and any kind of marking would just be, you know, run over by, by taxis and people and donkeys. But they maintained that boundary, and people in the town talked about that place. They talked about how, oh, the hyenas always come together and they fight at Argobetti. Um, Or there's this guy, he takes meat to Argobetti and he makes the hyenas fight, and then people choose sides and, and they cheer on which side they want to win. And so I'd, I'd, already, I'd already had this... Um, had this grounding from the people in Harrow that this was where the clown boundary was and this is where they do their fighting. And then lo and behold, that, that's where they did their fighting. And so wow. you can see how wow. you can see how once people start accepting it as a boundary, then they're going to give it over to the hyenas. And that's where, the, that's where this social relationship becomes a, a, a cross-species thing. Well, I guess they sense. can give it over to them or they can exploit it. Yeah, it does. It, it makes 
It makes a lot of sense. And I mean, like we were speaking about earlier with the idea that we kind of think of animals as being ecological and humans as being social or cultural. We're we're very clear that humans will also draw boundaries using you know social and cultural means uh, as well. You know we will we will. There's a fight in a particular place. It starts to gain some significance as being a place where we don't you know it, it's got meaning for us of sorts. But yet we don't necessarily ascribe that same kind of um, spatial significance to other animals. Where maybe there's a space that's been given significance based on the interactions that groups have had there. Um, but something that's interesting that you've brought up a few times is, you know, how humans do, even though they give o- over to hyenas and they accept them in the space, they do also shape hyena social worlds, even even in a, even if they're not aggressive. So a lot of a lot of the relationships we speak about with humans in the urban often involves humans being. Uh, quite mean to urban animals actually problematizing human and uh, human animals sorry problematizing animals uh, you know whether it's a war on rats or you know reproductive surgery on a variety of different species so that they don't you know procreate humans have a way of intervening in animals lives when they think they're problems but even here in this city where you've got an animal that people don't view as a problem but rather as part of the urban landscape human and animal lives shape each other uh, in interesting ways. And sorry, I'm going off on a variety of spaces here, but something I wanted to come back to is the economic. So we spoke about the ecological, the social, the historical, but there's this feeding site, and it's not just a site where someone is benignly feeding the hyenas. Is it just a social, like, we like them and we're feeding you, or is it an economic thing where you can make money off of? Yeah, it, it's a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are two feeding sites in, in Hara, or there were when I was doing field work there. Um, one of them was, was very much a money-making operation. Um, and and the other one, actually, the two feeding sites also fed the two clans that, that we're discussing here. And the Aboka clan feeding site, he was he was pretty money-focused and... Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to generate an interesting tourism experience where the other the other guy um feeding the sophie hyenas uh yusuf who i spent a lot of time with and, and whose family i spent a lot of time with um he wasn't so focused on the money in fact yusuf didn't really care about the money he he did do it for an income though mm-hmm. but when tour guides would try and scam him out of out of a few bucks he just didn't care and okay. so he, he had a bit of a love for the hyenas as well, and he, he was fond of them. And he wasn't just there to make money off hyenas. Does the feeding exist oh. only to cater to tourist markets, or is this something that would exist even if tourists didn't come to Harar to see, to see them? That's a good question. Uh, yeah, I think it predates tourism in mm-hmm. Harar. But now once people are making money off the feeding, then the butcher shops charge them for the meat scraps and the bones. Mm-hmm. And so the hyena feeders need to pay for the food to to feed to the hyenas. So if you take away the tourists, then the hyena feeders are, um, are left with no income to buy the food. And so I think uh, I think the feeding would would end. Interesting. So they've also begun. The hyenas have begun to shape you know human economic systems as well. But 
we need to perhaps get to the concept and focus, um, multi-species commons. Now, this is a really great idea that you bring up in your paper. So you, you, you speak about this this kind of unfolding of a, of a social and ecological and historical um, story with this, this young hyena. But then you start to say that this is indicative of a multi-species commons. What is, what is, maybe we could start with a commons first. When we speak of a commons, what does that even mean? A commons, I, let me think. I came up with that idea just to, just to try and narrow the focus on um, these entanglements where, where histories and, and socialities and, and ecologies all combine or they'll coalesce at particular places mm-hmm. that become very salient. And it was this particular place, this this area outside the Oakberry Gate, which is which is a common that that just led me to to come up with that that idea, just to just to focus on something that um, that when you look at it tends to lead you in all sorts of different directions in understanding. Um, this multi-species sociality. When you focus on that place where hyenas and humans come together, um, it, the the threads lead you outward. So you have to start looking at histories, at how mm. this place came to be, and you have to start looking at ecologies, at what humans are, what humans are doing in the in the landscape around that area. Um, that is that is creating that place. Um, I don't know if I wrote about it in that particular article, but there's the chat farming, the chat farming around around Hara, um, creates uh, an economic system where people are constantly coming into the town, and they're they're arriving at Argaberry Gate, and there are markets set up to sell chat at Argaberry Gate, and but the chat farming is in a way dependent upon the hyenas because the hyenas. Um, they deter thieves from stealing the plants. They're, they're actually conducive to chat farming. And so um, you just you just find these networks and these threads that go off in all different directions and all arrive back at this place um, that is this, this common outside the Agaberry Gate. But wouldn't, so commons, when, when I hear the word commons, I think, I think of uh, shared land, farmers that maybe have... Uh, animals that they are managing and who are sharing the grass, I guess. Uh, and, and that's what I kind of think of when I think of a commons. And is that different? Does it need to involve food, the way you're using multi-species commons? Or is it just a site at which a variety of histories, ecologies, and, and social interactions kind of coalesce? It's a, it's a, it's a skein of relations. Or is it more, yeah. I, I don't know, or does it have anything to do with that kind of traditional idea of the commons being a land or a space that's open to anybody? It's Yeah, it's not an economic uh, – I don't use it in economic terms. Um, mm-hmm. I use it in womble terms. So if you think of Wimbledon Common, mm-hmm. where where the wombles uh, live, that's that's where I get my concept of common. Can of you explain? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the wombles. Um, I'm not. I don't know what a womble is. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Uh, they're 
they're basically um, it's a kids show, the Wombles, and it's about these uh, these creatures that live under the ground at Wimbledon Common in London. I presume it's in London, okay. and the <clears throat> and these Wombles coexist alongside the humans in this particular space. Uh, but they don't directly interact with them. Apart from kids, I think they interact with the kids. And uh, the the wombles rely on the um, on the stuff that humans throw away, and so they recycle it and they, they make their own things. They're, they're great recyclers. And so I guess that's that's where that's where the term common came from for me. All right. So it's so okay. So that helps me think through this and. With the whole city and the way you're thinking about a multi-species commons and using the concept, is the whole city a multi-species commons or do you view specific places in the city as sites of multi-species uh, or as sites of multi-species commons? I mean, yeah, technically the whole world is. Um, but uh, I guess the multi-species commons, it's it's – it's not there to describe the world. It's there to, um, I don't even know if it's helpful, but it's it's just there to identify places, identify these um, uh, these loci mm-hmm. as, from where you can trace threads out centrifugally. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and find it, these are loci from where you can find these threads, where you can really find these threads overlapping. There, uh, a common it's a helpful place like Argaberry where you can really find salient threads of, of um, multi-species connections. So it's almost together. like a method. It's like a methodology. You start with a specific. So instead of maybe starting with a specific species or a specific relationship in mind, you start with a specific space, and you say, okay, here's the space. And from that space, you, I guess it's inductive. I don't know. You start in that space and you say, well, what, what cross-species or multi-species relationships are happening in the space? And, and, and I guess it stretches back into history. It stretches into ecology. It stretches into, you know, um, sociology. You start to say, okay, from this one space, how do we pry apart what's going on? Whether it's women in a market selling chat and you say, okay, there's these women selling chat and there are a variety of different bodies and vehicles and things that all move through this space. And one of the key interactions are the woman selling the chat, but also hyenas coming and, and fighting. There's a lot of social interaction happening. So is that kind of it? You you start in the space and you say, okay, from here, and you might not see everything, I'm guessing. You you're not gonna you're not gonna give a totalizing view of this place. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm asking. It was more of a, like a, um, I don't know. Like, I, yeah, I think I, this is really generative right now. Um, I, mean, I think thinking of it as a methodology kind of helps me to to grasp to grasp it in, a, in an interesting way. I guess. I guess as a method methodological tool, mm. uh, I, I would um, think about it. Yeah. For sure, because because I think there's there's different ways. If if I were to think of the concept multi species commons, I think part of me wants to think of it as an actual place, a commons where that's maybe been a place that's not owned and been delineated as a place for all beings, 
you know, anyone can go there, any being can use the space. No one is denied access based on how many legs they have or whether they're human or non-human. Um, so I think there's a way of imagining that as an ideal space that we could work towards on the one hand. So that's what I first uh, thought when I heard multi-species commons is I thought, right. okay, maybe it's a space that we're moving towards. But in the way you're talking about it here, I'm thinking, oh no, it's actually got its analytical power is, is, is methodologically, how do we, how do we, how do we look at a space and unfurl it as an already existing multi-species commons? Sorry, sorry. The reason I'm chattering here is I think I'm having like a ah moment where I'm figuring out what you're saying. Like, wow, that's cool. Um, yeah. So, is well, is that kind of some of your thinking there? Yeah. Well, I mean, if we think in terms of the hyenas, it's not a common at all for them. That's a that's a clan boundary. That's not shared land. Mm. But uh, I mean, as a methodological tool, it is shared land for them because that's where they come together. That's where they have their their clan war. But in, in economic terms, I guess, um, it, it's not a commons. And so in terms of a commons, it's not, it's not a place of share. I think, I think we mustn't get tripped up on this um, idea of sharing. Mm -hmm. it's, more, it's more a place of coming together. So there can be conflict there. And in the case of the two hyena clans, there's conflict and the people have given it over to the hyenas, so it's not necessarily a case of sharing there. It's not, it's, yeah, I think it's more of a place of, uh, I guess, interaction or interface. So it's like a, a place of, I think Donna Haraway would call it something like a, a contact zone. It's a, it's a place where a lot of contact happens and a lot of interaction and, and social um, yeah, social happenings. Yeah, My so only I think... nuance to that would be that uh, contact sort of contact implies a, a prior separation, mm -hmm. okay. or a possibly a boundary, whereas it's a, it's a, it's more of a zone of overlap. Okay, so it's it's I like that we're like workshopping this year. Um, yeah, yeah, because. Because you could almost imagine, so I'm imagining a market square uh, and there's this invisible line cutting through the market square where the, the hyenas know that one side is mine and another side is not and that I should not cross that. But then that makes that line, that invisible line, and the humans in the square are also aware of this line. They're aware that there are there's a social happening here and sometimes they, they bait for fighting or they do some other stuff there. But humans understand what's going on in that line as well. Okay. Yeah. So it's not a shared, I mean, I guess it is shared, not in, maybe not in a, in a kind way, like we're sitting down and we're having dinner together, but it is a shared understanding, I suppose. It's, it's, it's a common understanding of space, isn't it? Yeah, it is um, coming to a coalescing understanding. Yeah, I guess you could say common understanding. I th I'm pretty sure they understand it in different terms. Yeah, but I, I take your point. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you are literally the expert on this. I have not thought about this until right now. So this is, um, I, I, I think, I think this is really. It's one of those concepts where if you were to just, I think many people could take it in many different interesting directions whether it's as, as a theory or an ideal but as you're using a chair also as a, as a methodology so 
thinking about it as a methodology and a place, you know, a lens that you could put on in terms of analyzing distinct spaces of of trying to unpack some of these multi-species relationships and overlaps that have happened for, for thousands of years. What are other maybe significant sites in cities where you think this type of multi-species commons methodology would be useful where we think, okay, if you were to go to these places and cities, you would probably start to find and unpack numerous multi-species entanglements. Um, I think with primates, there's, there's probably, oh, there, there is a lot of, um, a lot of productive, a lot of uh, informative um, material out there. There's, um, for instance, monkeys in uh, Lopburi in Thailand, mm-hmm. Um, that are traveling in the back of people's cars and and really um, and where people are, are having ceremonies to feed the monkeys and the monkeys are hugely dependent on, on people's food where where you're finding social species highly social species overlapping with humans is where it's most overt but then sociality is not just um, our, our anthropocentric, narrow focused idea mm. of, of sociality where a solitary animal is is in fact being social because they maintain territorial boundaries and they mm-hmm. they make noise they make sounds and they they do actually have social relationships with the other solitary animals of their species and so there will be places in urban environments where that is going on it's just harder to harder to study that and understand that yeah and there might, yeah, and there might be interactions between. I mean, not might be. There are definitely interactions between other species in urban areas where humans are not really part of that relationship, and maybe starting to understand how the urban shapes those relationships between those species too. But I'm curious now. So, like Hara and Lopburi, these are, are like standout examples with species and human interactions that are quite standout. They're 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 really interesting. They're they're almost charismatic they, they they stand out as yeah. just incredible interactions what about more you know could you think of spaces and cities that i don't know if you were to think of any city that if you were to go to this space in a city chances are you're going to find interesting multi-species common analyses where you could start to really pry apart some more than human relationships what are you looking for an example or yeah like I, I don't know i'm thinking market squares would be an interesting I, I guess in most cities there's a market square where even today you would go and there might in some cities there might be no animals present in the market square unless there are dogs walking through there but if you were to start in that place and start of do that centrifugal oh, uh, yeah. analysis you were talking of and start to work your way backwards and ecologically and socially i wonder how many bones are underneath you know, market squares and and what animals that tells us about the ones that you can see and the ones that you can't. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you could you would look at places where animals are being fed, mm. um, where animals are interacting with tourists. I'm thinking about, uh, say, railroads. In um, it doesn't have to be like a, a commons in in human terms. Mm. Um, how railroads in India uh, are affected by elephants and how elephants are affected by railroads. And so there might be a particular crossing of a railroad uh, that, uh, that elephants use. 
Um, I didn't know elephants that, used railroads. Well, when they cross over, or well, they might actually, you'd have to talk to an elephant expert about that, but they, um, generally animals use use human trails because they're, they're paved and they're easier, um, which is what happens with wild dogs in Australia. If, if you want to set a camera trap to photograph a wild dog in Australia, you, you would do it on a, a human trackway. So it doesn't have to be I would this... never have thought of doing that. Neither would I until, uh, until a camera trapping expert told me. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. And so um, it doesn't have to be, uh, doesn't have to be what we think of as a commons. It can be, like I said, a trackway or a pathway. A garbage mm-hmm. dump is, is a pretty, a pretty good place to look. Oh, and yeah. uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of garbage dumps where, where people and animals are interacting. And I, I mean, I saw people and hyenas um, standing behind the same garbage truck. And and there was a guy in Harrow who used to sort through the garbage. And if he found a bone, he'd throw it over his shoulder and the hyenas would be behind him and they'd grab the bone. That's um, a fascinating. Like, that's really a site I haven't seen come up in literature anywhere, really, in talking about. I mean, we speak a lot about waste and I'm not the most widely read person on animals in the urban, but waste and kind of waste flows come up often when speaking about animals in the urban. But I'm not sure I've read many papers where they center a garbage dump or or a site, you know, doing the kind of analysis you're saying here and starting from there, the amount of species you would find there where you say, okay, this is the waste of a city. We like to think of our cities as being clean and devoid of trash or, or but we put all of our trash somewhere else. That would be a really interesting um, for any city, I think. Totally, yeah. I just I just saw a paper a few um, a few days ago that was um, looking at elephants and the effect of a, a garbage dump diet on elephants, and they found that the the elephants, depending on on garbage, were actually healthier. Really? <laughs> yeah. What? Because they're finding more food. It's just there's more, or it's a richer Possibly diet. Possibly there's more. Or- or varied, yeah, richer diet, yeah. Wow. Because I know I think squirrels in North America are increasingly, I think they they have higher rates of uh, diabetes, or is it diabetes? Or, oh, really? Yeah, they have like um, no cholesterol. Sorry, not diabetes. They have higher higher cholesterol than their non-city cousins because they tend to eat higher you know, saturated fats, et cetera. So they've just got higher cholesterol, which oh, is – so I, I guess there are positives and there are negatives depending on what you're finding in the dumpster. Yeah. <laughs> All yeah, right, probably, uh, imagine what you'd be finding with raccoons because raccoons are um, – the ones that are eating human garbage, they, they, they're, they're pretty much converging on a human diet. Yeah, and they're, they're very clever at doing it. Um, I mean yeah. – they're 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 wily and they they figure it out. They're problem solvers, and I think this is something we see with a lot of the animals that have been coming up so far. Is that it's not just that it's happenstance that they're coming upon trash, or or that it's something that they're being purely just opportunistic about. They're adaptable. They're figuring out new ways to be, and they're using the urban. And I don't want to romanticize the urban either, and be like, oh, it's this oasis for animals, uh, but it is. I think animals are making active decisions as well in terms of figuring out how to use the space to their advantage. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Mm, it's interesting. 
Oh, okay. So um, do you have a, towards the end of each episode, I, I give folks an opportunity to read a quote that maybe speaks to the theme of the season or maybe to the concept and focus. Uh, do you have a, a quote ready? Uh, I do. The quote is from a writer called Paul Shepard, who has written pretty widely on animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is from his book, which is called The Tender Carnivore and the Sacred Game. I use this quote to start off my second book, which is called Crocodile Undone, which is um, it's about multi-species relationships, but it's focused on domestication and the concept of unmaking. Um, his quote reads, the husbandry system whose forms underlie the foundations of modern thought excludes wild nature as chaotic, other, and evil. When he says that, he's... He leads into it um, by talking about totemism and in what he calls tribal societies, totemism uh, is a way of representing the world and and connections between different animal species. So um, if, if your totem was rabbit and my totem was fox, um, a Western mind would think that we were in conflict. Mm-hmm. That there was a predator-prey relationship, whereas um, for in traditional or in the true sense of what um, Paul Shepard sees as totemism, it's not about it's not about conflict. It's more about connection. <clears throat> that that rabbits and foxes are connected in a world of connections as as predator and prey, but that they're they're also interdependent. And I use this quote because it speaks to the the way that animal domestication has sought to separate animal species from the connections of their traditional ecologies, to take away the predators, mm-hmm. take away the parasites and the pests and so forth. So it's I haven't I haven't used it in the same way that Paul Shepard is using it, but we're sort of converging on the same notion that uh, domestication is an extension, I guess, of a dualist form of thinking of nature and of human versus nature. So so in the act of saying these animals are domesticated and these animals are not domesticated, we further just kind of divide up and you say, like we create conflict between different beings instead of recognizing that all these different beings are connected with, with one another. How how do you see this as being related to to the urban? Uh, when you start to think about and and maybe with 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 the hyenas in particular here is is that kind of troubling this idea? You know these hyenas that are closer to humans. I don't think anyone would call them domesticated, um, but yeah. What what do, what are you thinking of here in terms of bringing forward these ideas of domestication and and thinking through the urban? That's a good point. Um, I haven't thought of it much in terms of how what it says about the urban environment other than it's 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 also a comment i mean the husbandry system is uh, or urbanization is an extension of i guess the animal husbandry system it's mm. it's a consequence of of um food production and domestication and the traditional Western thinking is that the urban environment is separate from the natural environment, mm. and it's a and that kind of that kind of dualism is a denial of the connectivities that we see in a in a multi species commons. 
that yeah. we only have to look more closely at an urban environment to see that we are in fact connected to these other species, that there are, there are multiple connections. Yeah, we think of the urban as being a domesticated space, whereas we think of everything out there as being a wild space. Um, and we kind of, and this kind of reifies the idea of human city animal wild. And I think the hyenas and the relationships happening in Hara just trouble that completely where you say, okay, the city is neither domesticated nor wild uh, and neither are these species where they're, because domestication is kind of a, a process as well. Uh, I guess it's relationships that have forged over a long amount of time. But there is, again, I think a political dimension to domestication as well. Uh, it's not as though I think cows or chickens want to be domesticated in the ways they are today, right? Uh, so are you right. are you thinking of, in what way are you thinking of domestication here, of like of aurochs becoming cows or... Um... When I talk about domestication, um, I think it's more productive not to look at how animals have been transformed not to look at the the end product mm -hmm. in terms of um morphological changes that that kind of thing but in terms of um what's been taken away um, okay. and so i see domestication as the uh, the unmaking of species as the taking away of the species um traditional connectivities with their broader ecologies and then incorporation into a into a human, an, anthrop an anthropogenic or anthropocentric paradigm, um, mm -hmm. which is in itself another ecological network, but it's it's a, a less stable network. It's it's um, very much dependent on human interaction and constantly ratcheting up the need does for this, human intervention to, to maintain stability. Does this maybe create kind of a romantic idea, though, of or, or make domesticated animals as they are today um, seem, and maybe I'm looking at the wrong thing here, but does it make domesticated animals as they seem today kind of seem as though they're lacking? So uh, they're not they're not what their forefathers were. A chicken today who's been domesticated, their body, uh, I spoke to Patrice Jones in a former episode, their bodies have just undergone dramatic changes, uh, genetic changes. Their whole bodies have been completely altered that they they've the extent to which they can live the way they would like to live has been fundamentally shifted. But that's not to say, I think, that the individual chicken is any less of an individual, any less uh, deserving of consideration. Does that make sense? That, that they've, yeah, lost, I, they've I, lost something in the that. process? Um, I, I don't see the individual domesticates as having lost anything. And when I talk about, say, farmed crocodiles, I talk about how their social relationships actually compel farmers to, to have to work to try and overcome their social, sociality. Mm. So um, the, the animals are, are intrinsically, potentially uh, ecologically complex, but the domestication is the human intervention to reduce that complexity and that complexity includes sociality because as far as I'm concerned, sociality is, is part of your, you know, your ecology. Um, yeah. And so taking a fox away from a chicken, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it, it's not to say that the chicken is less of a chicken, but what you have done um, is, is you've reduced that chicken's ecology. 
I see. So you've kind of limited, you've limited the way in which they could be. You've, you've said, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They've been separated. They've, they've been unmade. Yeah. So this is primarily in your, your other book, you said uh, Crocodile That's in and my second Dunn. book. Second Crocodile book. and Dunn, yeah. yeah. And that was focused in, in Australia? Uh, yes, it is. It's it's focused on the um, farming of and not farming, or <laughs> well, the farming and hunting of native Australian animals. Fascinating. Um, and uh, is that what you're currently working on now, or uh, do you have other other projects that you? Uh, that, I know that book's been released, but are you still working on yeah, the book's been this released. kind of theme? I'm working on that theme. Uh, I'm working on a. Uh, on a project in which I would look at um, traditional burning practices uh, by Aboriginal people and how those burning practices incorporate the, the agency of other animals. Fascinating. And is that going to be another book? Uh, it needs to be a research project first. Um, <laughs> I'm waiting on word of the funding. Well, good luck. Yeah, thank you so much for for joining me today. Um, if people are interested in your work, either the, your work with hyenas in Ara or your work on uh, crocodiles or animals in Australia, how could they get in touch with you or learn more about the work that you're doing? Uh, they can direct message me on Twitter. Uh, I don't maintain my blogs anymore, but um, my field work, my ongoing field work in Hara, I um, I posted a lot of blog posts while I was doing that, so that's a that's a good way to see what was happening at the time. Otherwise, yeah, you can look up PSU Press and search on my books. Great. Thank you. I'll make sure that both of them are on the podcast uh, page as well. Thank you for that. But uh, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing and for, you know, letting me ask, <laughs> letting me brainstorm your concept with you. Um, it's been a really, it's been a really fantastic uh, conversation. Thank you, Claudia. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the Animal Highlight. In both the last episode and this episode, leopards came up, so I thought I would focus a bit on them in this highlight. Now, you might not think of leopards as being urban animals, but they are. In fact, some of the highest concentrations of leopards in the world are found in and around Indian cities. I don't know if you've ever seen that BBC uh, footage. It's a couple of years old now of a leopard stalking and hunting pigs on the outskirts of Bombay. And you can see just near the leopard on pathway nearby a group of humans walking. It's unbelievable to see this footage of a leopard moving at night completely unseen through an urban landscape. And it's not just in Indian cities that you're going to find leopards. They've been spotted in and around urban areas across Asia and across Africa. Leopards have been spotted near Nairobi, Harare, and even Johannesburg. So this starts to raise some questions. Why are leopards being drawn to urban areas? What is it about urban areas and leopards that has this kind of connection? And one answer, of course, is that their habitats are being destroyed and they're having to get more innovative in terms of where and how they hunt. Another answer is that urban areas are thought to be and provide leopards with some opportunities for easy prey. And by easy prey, I'm talking here about free roaming or stray dogs. And lastly, something really interesting that I hadn't thought of before is that urban areas are thought to provide leopards with some sort of sound camouflage. They're really effective hunters and they're very good at moving and staying in the shadows and being unseen. And the city seems to provide them with a kind of noisy enough landscape that they're able to move through the city without being detected at all. And that's a really interesting idea. I hadn't thought of kind of the relationship between leopards and sound before. 
Another component or part of this is that out of all the big cats, leopards have the widest range. They're found in more countries than any of the other cats. Uh, I think it's 70 now. And they have the widest geographical range across Africa. But let's talk a bit about the animals themselves. So pound for pound, leopards are thought to be the strongest animal in the world. They can carry up to three times their body weight into a tree. They have vision that is substantially better than ours. Um, I found a statistic that said it was seven times better than human vision. I don't know what that means. I, I'm, I'm trying to think through it. Like, what does one times better my vision look like? Um, so, yeah, I, I don't quite understand that. But their eyesight is really, really powerful. So keep that in mind. And uh, they have interesting sex lives. So leopards are fairly solitary. They like to stick to themselves and be alone. But when it comes time to have sex, males and females will pair up. And they will have sex every 15 minutes for up to five days. And then they'll go their separate ways. And the mum will have a three-month gestation period, which is really quick. Uh, I was quite surprised by that, i got to say. So she'll be pregnant for three months. Cubs will be born. And uh, then they will stay together for almost two years. And when the cubs are born, they're born with their eyes closed. And when they open, they're bright blue, actually, until then, you know, things start to change. So leopards have really uh, complex social lives that involve parenting, sex, killing, eating, and making homes in pretty distinctive places, including urban areas. Uh, I just want to throw one last uh, you know, little tidbit there in for you, that the word leopard is actually uh, has etymological links to lion and panther. So leopard, lion, panther. So a leopard is a lion panther, which is pretty cool. If you're interested in learning more about urban leopard relations, you might want to check out the work of Nayanika Matu and her recent book, Crooked Cats. All right, that's it. A huge thank you once again to Marcus for being a fantastic guest. As always, to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple for sponsoring this podcast. To Jeremy John for the logo and to Gordon Clark for the bed music. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hertenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I R O A R P O D.com.